a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to The Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan. The world is once again at a crossroads regarding its future. Reglobalization versus deglobalization, more cooperation going forward or more confrontation. Now, welcome to Tongzhou for the first ever Tongzhou Global Development Forum, which attracted the whole range of senior policymakers, diplomats, and scholars. CGTN is invited to attend this forum, and we caught up with some of the attendees. What do you make of the significance of the Xi-Biden summit in San Francisco? Well, it's a great meeting, and it's much better than uh, one can expect it. I first want to applaud the two heads of state. Despite this very difficult environment, a lot of challenges, a lot of risks, uh, they reach uh, uh, this kind of summit. And especially President Xi Jinping, you know, uh, you can see there are a lot of concerns, there are a lot of uncertainties, and uh, also some interest groups may always uh, create the problem. But you look back that uh, over the past six months, it's a very clear map First, invite uh, Bill Gates and Dr. Kissinger. Uh, these are the non-government people, emphasize people-to-people -people diplomacy, create a good environment. But if we early on invite some you know, officials, probably it will be different atmosphere. Then invite the four cabinet members, especially uh, Jenny Allen and also John Kerry, uh, really talk about importance of financial cooperation and the climate change. Then the, uh, the Commerce Secretary also had a successful visit. Then the Senator Schumer and the, the bipartisan delegates, because as we know, the Congress is really quite anti-China. So that move certainly also challenges some of them, the unanimous views about China uh, in the U.S. Congress. But also then the, the highlight is the governor of uh, California because he played a very, very important role in the visit, you can see from the, the arrangement. Uh, then the two Chinese officials, senior officials Wang Yi and He Lifeng visit the U.S. This is a great map, you're looking back. You know, if we, the, the sequence changes, the things will change. So it's a brilliant move, but also deliver an excellent speech and uh, receive a very respectful welcome by various interest groups and by President Biden and his team. That's wonderful. Now for Biden also, it's very, very interesting. So sometimes I wonder whether he invited Xi Jinping and the, the current uh, kind of uh, uh, China unfriendly American domestic politics, whether he behaved that as a president of the US or as a candidate for the next election. So I think that probably somewhere uh, both uh, play an important role. But most importantly, I think both leaders understand importance of peace because that the Asia Pacific region is now this sounds like an arms race, particularly Japan and South Korea on board. And there's a tendency to um, establish so-called the Asia version of NATO. This will be a disaster for the region because that region maintained 40 years of peace, but now could be in jeopardy. But also, that, as we know, that the Taiwan local election will be coming. And certainly, there's a lot of uh, concern and not so much about intended move, but the unexpected incidents, as like both presidents mentioned. But the real highlight in this visit, I believe, that uh, is on the AI. I think it's not fully announced. I expect that uh, probably sometimes in the near future, both leaders will announce the agreement or the move to promote dialogue in the AI, particularly human control of nuclear weapons in the AI era. This will be fantastic achievement 
because we know that uh, there's some de deterrence in the nuclear age, but in the AI age, uh, it's largely it's a mess. You, when you can argue that this will be eventually will be machine to machine, this will be devastating for humanity. So if the two leaders of the two most powerful AI countries can reach agreement in this area, this uh, the implication, the achievement is really extremely important. Do you think this meeting will somehow put a floor on the downward spiral of China-US relations? Or do you think the problems, more like structural problems, will resurface? They're destined to resurface over time. Well, as you know, that the ICU-China relation is not a free force. Free force is like a doomed to be a, a conflict. I think uh, any military conflict should be and can be avoided. But the U.S.-China relation is certainly is a downward uh, spiral. But uh, this one is trying to stabilize. It's not uh, the objective to return to the, the uh, you know, previous track like uh, six or seven years ago because the world has changed. Particularly American politics has changed. And so I think uh, you mentioned about structure. This is I have been writing all the time in the past uh, two or three years. It's uh, nothing to do with individual leaders, although individual leaders are very, very important. And uh, it's to do with the structural challenges, particularly on the U.S. side, for the, the three reasons. One is that the uh, U.S. never experienced these kind of challenges, all comprehensive, you know, militarily, economically, science, technology, you name it. So they feel insecure. Uh, this is number one. Uh, compared with the Cold War, the Soviet Union was not that kind of comprehensive challenge. Number two, related with American domestic situation, if American is in good shape, they don't care about the different political system, different ideology, different economic model. But the U.S. in trouble in terms of bipartisan, vicious partisan politics, and um, uh, economic disparity, and uh, uh, ethnic tensions, even cultural war, you name it. So you become even more sensitive about the different model and different political system. So this will not disappear in the near future. And lastly, Chinese middle class from not existed 37 years ago to now become the largest middle class country in the world with 400 million people belong to the middle class. Even the COVID situation did not change too much. But the US middle class is shrinking from 70% after World War II to 61% in 1970s, now to less than 50%. My colleague at Brookings had a report talking about male workers, their salary, average salary, even lower than 50 years ago. So that explains these people, uh, they support Donald uh, Trump in the first place. That explains Biden wanted to lift the trade tariff, but could not do that because working class, middle class oppose it. Now they uh, wrongly believe that the Chinese people probably eat our lunch because Chinese middle class is expanding. Now this is wrong perception, but you can understand where they come from. All these three things come together, meaning it's very, very difficult to change. But despite all these problems or challenges, I think both leaders are determined to avoid major mistakes and particularly war and peace, but also China emphasized even economic domain, you, you uh, decouple, uh, relocation uh, will not serve American interests and certainly will hurt the U.S. So let's make the cake bigger. And the China want to continue to open, welcome American uh, firms and uh, uh, the business uh, communities warm welcome in that banquet certainly reflects that. So not like some people say that the business group want to withdraw China, but the reality is it's uh, some of the people in the U.S. Congress want to restrain, want to actually this is the things is you really not help your own company. So I think uh, that message 
resonated very well. But we also should know that the, the information is not symmetrical. Now, what we receive and the American people receive may be different. At the moment, American obsessed with the two possible wars, American involvement, maybe even more conflict in the world. So I think that the Xi Jinping's message certainly will resonate well in uh, some of the sectors in American society. Uh, hopefully, his emphasis on people-to-people -people exchanges, especially young people's exchanges, will carry a long way to improve relationship in the years to come. This leader summit in San Francisco between President Xi and President Biden culminated in this uh, San Francisco vision. And uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi also said there are um, agreements on a whole host of issues covering some 20 areas of cooperation. You've been studying this relationship for decades. What is the prospect of it uh, going forward? If, for example, Taiwan local election will move in a way not good for DPP, and will return to President Ma Ying-jeou or Taiwan leader Ma Ying-jeou's era, then some hawkish people will not let that happen, including those some in, the, in Taiwan and some in the U.S. Congress. So there will be a lot of challenges. I think the very, very important thing is that uh, the top leaders, uh, White House and uh, Beijing, will continue to work together, not let this kind of political interest or interest group hijack uh, the very important bilateral relationship, the most important bilateral relationship. So this is a matter of war and peace. This is a matter of economic prosperity at the time the whole world faces economic challenges. So I think that the US and China are also financial power and uh, uh, economic power. So this is, will be a great message, not only for people in China, people for US, but also for what we call the third party, EU, ASEAN countries, and beyond. So I think that, uh, of course, the summit is just over a few days ago, but I think the impact will be with us for the coming weeks and months. But the important thing is that I think both sides, the top leaders are also understand that some people may not be happy with the result, and, but the important thing is we should work together rather than work against each other. Uncertainty is a prominent feature of our era, and finding opportunities for development remains a challenge for the whole world. People have been talking about this special relationship between the UK and the US, which have been echoed and articulated by successive administrations in Washington and London. Does that mean the UK will follow in the footsteps, in, follow in locker step with the United States uh, militarily and strategically when it comes to dealing with China or somehow in some areas the UK going forward will have uh, sort of its own strategic autonomy, if you will. You know, Britain has long been a close ally of the United States. We're members of NATO, but of course NATO relates to Europe. It doesn't relate to China. I, th I think one of the big problems potentially is the protectionism in American trade policy started by Trump. Britain is a, an open trading economy. And if Trump were to return and, and go back to this kind of nationalistic economic policy, there will be a big divergence with Britain and the United States, probably the first time for a long time. And certainly as somebody who is pro-European, I want to see Britain uh, strengthening its relationship again with, uh, with other countries in, in Europe. And there's an element of strategic autonomy there. Let's talk about China-UK relations uh, and uh, one 
that you helped engineer when you were leading the real economy of the UK when you were the president of the Board of Economic Departments. Talking about the golden era, shifting from that to where we are today, um, how do you look at this uh, evolution? Well, we had a high point, which is when President Xi came to London and a lot of good business and other transactions were done. We've had continuing high levels of visit from you know, overseas students from China. Uh, I think it was, it was very badly disrupted by the pandemic, the breakdown in communications. And we've been affected by the overall cooling of relations with the West and, and China. Um, and in, in the case of the UK, a particular issue was, of course, Hong Kong, because a lot of Hong Kongers are British nationals. So that did sour relationship. But I think recently there's improvement. Uh, the foreign minister cleverly came here recently and made it very clear we want to have positive, constructive, good relations with China. So I'm, I'm, we may not get back to the golden era, but maybe a silver era, so a, a restoration of uh, good relations we, we had before. So in your book, uh, Secretary Cable, The Chinese Conundrum Engagement or Conflict, published uh, or republished rather in 2021, uh, you said there could be two approaches, two paths towards the future regarding China. Can you elaborate? Well, basically, I was setting out two scenarios because we can't forecast the future. We don't know the future. Uh, but the world could go in different directions. And one of them is what I call Davos China, in which China engages with the world economy, continues opening up. It uh, makes for more foreign investment, more inward investment into China. This is all welcome. It plays a big role in global institutions as well as the global south. And this, this is all a, a kind of welcome, op continued opening up. But there is an alternative future which is potentially worrying, what, what I call Sparta China, because of the language of the Thucydides trap, in which there becomes a preoccupation with security, and security takes preference over continued economic growth and well-being. It's um, mutually reinforcing, because as the West becomes obsessed by security, so does China, and you get into a conflict situation. I hope we will avoid that. Uh, and I think that the discussions with President Xi and, and Mr. Biden give the possibility that we see a Davos China as a, as a much more fruitful alternative. How do you see the, the, the competing, the clashes between the, the camp that says there should be more re-globalization and the other camp that is still advocating for de-globalization and their clashes? Yeah, I, th I think the origins of this lay in the financial crisis in 2008 because for half a century we had more or less continued expansion without economic crisis. Then the banks collapsed, we have serious economic trouble in many countries including UK uh, and, and it's, it's had the effect of making the general public in many countries much more frightened of engagement internationally worrying about the impact on their standard of living and so countries have started to put up barriers. Of course Trump led a lot of that process with very negative consequences. I think we have to get back to accepting that international trade, investment flows, globalization is good for the world and good for our two countries. In a world faced by profound challenges including climate and geopolitical crises, many agreed that creating more global public good should be a priority. You were leader of Romania, a country that fully appreciates and understands the consequences 
of great power rivalry for decades um, with the clashes between the Soviet sphere of influence versus those of NATO, uh, the US and the West. What would be your message to those who, who don't even care about whether the, uh, the United States and China can veer into conflict or can veer into another type of a Soviet US uh, major power conflict? Uh, let me stress the fact that in 1971, Romania helped uh, organizing the visit of uh, American President Nixon to China. So Romania had a very positive role uh, during uh, those years. Uh, well, now I think uh, it is important uh, for uh, countries like, uh, like Romania and others to uh, follow and to encourage uh, well, a kind of uh, development in the bilateral relations between China and uh, the United States. And my message uh, is for those who are following us that, uh, well, the world needs dialogue, not confrontation. And uh, I think that, uh, well, talking about the Tuchidides uh, trap, China is not uh, Athens and uh, the Americans uh, should learn that. China is not interested in having military uh, expansion. China is interested much more, as I understand, in organizing e economic projects like the Belt and Road. So uh, this has to be better explained. Let's talk about China. Uh, Romania has been experimenting with its own paths towards modernization and prosperity since um, many, many decades ago. And now you're in China. You've been coming to China for decades. How do you look at the Chinese path to modernization? The Chinese uh, decided in a very wise way that modernization does not mean westernization. So it was a problem that we had in Romania too, starting from 19th century and then in the beginning of the 20th century and later on. So we asked ourselves which is the best way to modernize uh, our society. Looking uh, to foreign countries to take a model from outside, from the West, or to look uh, backwards to the history, culture, traditions of Romania. And uh, I think that uh, in fact, China did uh, something uh, very smart. So that's why in Romania, we don't have this kind of, uh, uh, let's say, stubborn uh, idea that only what comes from Washington or from Brussels is good. So we have our own ideas also, we have our own values, and we would like to contribute also uh, uh, in sharing our experiences with uh, other countries. And we think the same, uh, China did the same, and I think uh, this is uh, uh, quite natural and easy to be understood. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, I remember that President Obama at a certain moment in the UN said, uh, when we tried, when we have tried to impose our democratic model in uh, the north of Africa, we missed uh, important uh, opportunities uh, to develop those societies and our relations with those societies, the Arab Spring and all those uh, periods. So I think we have to understand from the mistakes which have been made. And China, of course, after 100 years of bad experiences with the West, of course, now it's in a situation when 
it can share its own values, its own experience with other countries in a positive way and also in the economic way through a very important uh, project which is uh, Belt and Road uh, which at this moment represents perhaps the most ambitious uh, project of infrastructure in the world. You like the project, the idea? I think it is uh, excellent. It is an important uh, decision and uh, it is very uh, interesting that while the Americans uh, decoupled uh, in a way from uh, the global economic order, China became um, the best uh, advocate of globalization. And uh, this is, uh, well, a, a different approach, uh, well, in comparing with uh, what was happening, uh, let's say, one, two decades ago. Besides the Belt and Road Initiative, Chinese president also proposed other important initiatives that is contributing to global development and to creating a multipolar world. Professor Han, tell us a bit about what you're doing right now and how would you describe the working relationship both on the professional level and perhaps the personal level too between UNESCO and China? I'm right now the regional director of UNESCO based in Beijing and I'm representative to China also to Japan, uh, to South Korea, the Republic of Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and Mongolia. So it's a very interesting region, and especially our work in China is very, very critical uh, because we have a wonderful partnership with the Chinese government on many issues, including education, where we are promoting, for example, girls and women education, uh, where the First Lady uh, Excellency Madam Pang is a uh, special envoy and uh, President Xi has a special emphasis about world heritage, about natural heritage and our partnership on heritage and culture is very special. Also in science and technology and in the areas related to water management which I have been working on for more than 20 years in China. It's a very special area, the areas of environment where we have UNESCO Biosphere Reserves, UNESCO Natural Heritage Sites. We are working together on issues of biodiversity, for example, from Kunming to Montreal, as you know, the Convention on Biodiversity and the national parks, uh, very special in China. But at the same time, geoparks and geoheritage and intangible heritage. Uh, so China has the highest number of intangible heritage uh, elements in the world and very high number, second uh, only in the world right now, 57 World Heritage Sites. So China is a very, very strong partner of UNESCO and Chinese people, I'm really very delighted that wherever I go, they know UNESCO very well and uh, the uh, philosophy which have evolved for more than 2,000 years with Confucius, more than 5,000 years with uh, the river uh, culture between the Yellow River and the Yangtze River. So it's a very beautiful, uh, I would say, collaboration about people-to-people uh, -people exchanges, about shared prosperity, about sharing knowledge, about ecological civilization. How can we bring what is best in China to the world and what is best in the world to China with uh, uh, knowledge exchanges and uh, having more friendships uh, with uh, people with difficulties in many of the areas and people who are making excellent progress. You've been here for nearly three years. How do you find the traditional Chinese uh, cultural elements, Chinese philosophies in perhaps reviving this campaign of making the environment, uh, the society a better place? 
Chinese have always lived very closely with environment and that's something very beautiful. Like I recently learned about uh, Shang Shan Ro Shui. Yeah, uh, it's like uh, the greatest virtue is water. And a water expert, I feel like it's, water is a metaphor here. But really, uh, Chinese have lived with the environment for long and learned to live with the environment for long. Uh, so, uh, ecological civilization is uh, uh, basically an evolution over a long period of time. So, this is from Laos, uh, then Confucius, and then, of course, coming all the way uh, through different uh, civilizations. Uh, and that's where the, the power of culture, like Grand Canal, you know, is a very uh, interesting, uh, I would say, engineering structure. But it shows the care for water, it links several rivers, including Yangtze and Yellow River, from south all the way to the north to the Beijing, and how we have taken care of it over a period of time. Not the transport of goods and services, but at the same time, it has also linked the cities, it has created cultural linkages. So, learning over a period of time, and uh, coming back to the Chinese uh, philosophy, and now ecological civilization, the concept President Xi Jinping has given, is a very important thought, very important area, how you bring ecological management with the civilization, uh, which is uh, the way we live. So, and also in, uh, uh, we also call it, uh, e the principles related to sustainable development, social, economic, environmental, but a very important element is culture. So, bringing social, economic, environmental, and cultural elements together, that brings the ecological civilization and has the link with the nature and bringing harmony uh, with the diversity, uh, the, these are very important concepts. Talking about multilateralism, cultural uh, integration is uh, a part of it. What do you think of President Xi's Global Civilizations Initiative that was proposed um, not so long ago? Uh, it's very, I would say, natural evolution. If we want to have a peaceful world we, in UNESCO, we say we need to have intercultural dialogue. Intercultural dialogue can only be possible if we respect all civilization. As President Xi says, if there is one flower in the garden, it will not bring uh, the spring, you know. All flowers need to bloom and we need to really appreciate the beauty of all those flowers. So now China has 57 World Heritage Sites. But it's not about numbers and not about World Heritage Sites being only in China versus the rest of the world. And the rest of the world also, we have more than 1,000 World Heritage. But each one of these World Heritage Sites belong to the whole humanity. They have outstanding universal value. Like for example, a World Heritage Site, uh, uh, like the Palace Museum here in Beijing, very beautiful, wonderful, but also it belongs to the whole humanity. It belongs to everyone. And all of them are interconnected globally. But at the same time, I think the message is that by working together, by respecting all cultures, that's what Global Civilization Initiative is. Only then the world can progress. And that will do it for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. I'll see you again soon.